Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 56 with Joseph Makos and Joseph Bievenu. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? There's some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. So we are back on St. Claude. It's the day after the New Orleans Poetry Festival. Oh, I'm so hungover with poetry today. Like, dejected <laughs> and withdrawn from all these poets who came in and trampled our fair city. But you don't get a break from the poetry because we're continuing. It's just the next day. We're going to keep going with it. I just woke up, really, from the Poetry Fest a couple hours ago. But we have a special treat today because what we have, we have a, we have a few guests that are on with us. And this is sort of an a really cool thing that we get to have a few guests that uh, are part of a project that we actually talked about in a previous episode. Yeah, because it came up in our, in our uh, episode about poetry, poetry in, the in the newspaper, and we have yeah. some guests from Poets Reading the News. Yeah, indeed. Well, they're here for Poetry Fest. I'm going to introduce in a second. Uh, we have Elle uh, Aviv Newton, who is a fourth-generation Oaklander, presently based in Big Sur, California. He's co-founder and co-editor of Poets Reading the News. How are you, Al? I'm doing great, thanks. Great. Uh, and we also have uh, Jenna Spagnolo. Uh, Jay Spagnolo is an uh, activist, cultural producer, and poet living in California. Spagnolo has shared poetry through radio shows, film festivals, podcasts, and events around the country. How are you? All good, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, so, yeah, so this is Poets Reading the News. What you just want to talk about it first off, it's it's a fascinating project. I mean, you can go to Poets after you read the podcast, or right now if you want to listen to the podcast and sift through uh, PoetsReadingTheNews.com. Really cool. um, we're really happy to have them here. How did you end up at Poetry Fest in New Orleans? I, I, I just want to ask that first question to mm-hmm. bring us into this. Sure. One name, Jeffrey Cypress Wright, who is a writer that has published with us, invited us to be on a panel with him. We didn't know that there was a poetry festival here, but we were very much ready to come and, and to check it out. So it's been absolutely amazing all weekend. Yeah, he was coming from New York, That's right. um, but so many people come from all over the country for the New Orleans Poetry Festival, making it a really dynamic community. Truly, yeah. And it's only three years old, I believe. Yeah, three. Yeah, and three three years, yeah, yeah. we really kicked it open this year. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been a really refreshing and lovely thing to see people coming from around the country. Um, there's a fair share of local poets who are really down with the project too and come out. But out of the you know, I would say 250, I think around people registered for the event actually registered for the event, plus the coordinators, plus you know other people support. You know, it's about about two fifths local and three fifths not. So that's the break. Which I, I'm very, yeah, you can I'm, feel that blend. I'm really excited about that, though. That yeah. we're getting, that we're garnering this national community. Absolutely. And it's not just local, because people who are I local will either come around, around or not. Yeah. That's, that, think, that's just I how it is. in the past, I think that's been changing, which is in not just the Poetry Fest, but in general, but in the past, New Orleans has been a really insular poetry community. Uh, so I think, but I think not just Poetry Fest, in a lot of ways, it's been opening up a little more, which I think has been very good. And healthy for the poetry scene. Yeah, city. and the goal of the poetry uh, fest is actually to uh, ask for proposals and pitches and uh, panels and, and, and things from everyone. And 
the group of there's like there's like a dozen of us to actually read them all and and, and, and vote you know and, and see who's allowed in so it's uh it allows for a more expansive conversation in poetry to be able to do that and just like you know, and then uh, sometimes we'll have people who are locals who are like, well, I don't get to do anything at Poetry Fest. We're like, well, you should have submitted a, a proposal like everyone else who's submitting proposals. So, so yeah, what I was your... Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I just yeah. heard there was a record number of submissions there were. For, yeah. Yeah, for the panel discussion this year. So it felt really fortunate because we not only got to be on the panel with Jeffrey Cyphers, right? <laughs> we also got to host one of our own, which was about journalism and verse, which is what we do here at Poetry. Okay, so tell us a little bit about uh, the panel that you hosted with Jeff, and then we'll ask you about the other panel. Um, that was the exact question I was going to ask. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, the one we did with Jeffrey Cypress Wright was all about collaboration and kind of some more nuts and bolts, how to build a press um, from scratch. And, yeah, we're always happy to talk about that. We, we're still learning it ourselves, but we're kind of, we're almost, you know, two years in, so we have some advice. Um and then, yeah, the one that we did about our own panel, we we brought in two poets from Texas, actually. Yeah, two really amazing writers, uh, Abigail Carl Clausen and J. Todd Hawkins, who have been, yeah, really pivotal in, in kind of furthering along this concept that we're building with the platform. And so we got to go really in-depth with what, what Poets Reading the News is, um, where we're coming from, and, yeah, the effect of, you know, the interplay of poetics and mainstream media. It was amazing. And uh, what did you feel like? What was because there was such a diversity of presentations and formats. So it was uh, five of you on the panel. Was the panel four? four yeah. On the one that we were hosting, there were four. There were us two editors and two writers. We invited to come in. Okay, okay, yeah. that's cool. And then how was it? Uh, was there? Were you moderating? I was moderating. Okay, yeah, that's right. That's and right. Uh, what were the? What was the general gist of the? Yeah, some takeaways. Um, yeah. So we we went really deep with it, actually, and I'm, you know, happy to kind of recreate some of that conversation here because it was really beautiful, but in general, we talked about what was missing in mainstream corporate media and how people's voices could be amplified through poetics, um, how it can bring in so many different voices that aren't trained in more of the language of power that journalists are trained in and can speak from their own subjective truth about the news as it's unfolding around them, really place themselves back within the news cycle as active agents who can respond to it. And not just by reposting, but by responding. By responding, yeah, and, um, and making connections that traditional journalism isn't making. For example, the business section and the environment section in a traditional newspaper are on completely different pages, mm. but in reality, those two things are deeply intertwined. So a poet who's you know, reading, reading these news articles can make those connections that are a little bit wider and can create more of a comprehensive view of what's happening in the world. So maybe before we continue too much further with this discussion... Maybe, for our listeners' sake, could you maybe just describe what your site is all about a little bit? Please, yeah. Um, thanks for that. Um, so basically, the idea was to have a newspaper where we, uh, we follow some of the journalistic conventions. For example, we fact-check our poems. And... 
And it's, it's, if you go on our website, poetsreadingthenews.com, you'll see that we have sections that are similar to a traditional newspaper. We have, um, obituary section, we have culture section, we have science and tech, we have, you know, um, politics, etc. Gun violence is its own section. It really is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that there's a technology section. Yeah, it brings up really interesting things, for sure. Yeah, yeah so the site's designed to hit all those visual cues you recognize from going to places like the thenewyorktimes.com. But, you know, the twist, of course, is that all of the articles are written by poets in poetic verse. We would argue that they in themselves are news, Absolutely. Are, are journalism. And we definitely have examples of writers who do breaking reportage for us mm-hmm. on this medium. Yeah, so similar to how um, if you go to a protest, you people will pull out their phones and record directly from their protests, making that the most responsive on-the-ground reporting that we've ever seen, right? Um, in a similar vein, with with this platform, people can pull out their pens and respond from their own perspectives to things that are happening around them. Yeah, and one of the effects of that is, is making people into these very active agents that aren't just passively reading news stories, but able to create their own connections and serve their own points of view into what's going on. So it's meant to empower that action. Yeah, and we can't obviously publish all of it. We sit no. through it for, um, for things that we think are really um, well worth your time to read. But um, we are also leading workshops around the country to teach people the practice of writing journalism in verse. So, okay, so I guess that's a, that would be an interesting thing to talk about, I guess. Um, so, I think the kind of things that journalists are taught are pretty different from the kind of things poetry is taught. Where is the intersection there? And are there things... I don't know, well, I guess... Uh, also, do you find it's poets deciding to write about events, or is it journalists deciding to write poetry? Yeah, that's an interesting from? question. You know, we've met some professors even just this weekend who, you know, one of them was teaching both journalism and creative writing in two separate classes and was really confounded that this project, you know, is such a perfect blend of both. And in terms of what we've published, we've published Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists as well as, you know, established, renowned poets. So a variety of different kinds of writers are coming to this field because it is quite accessible. Um, so it isn't just solely one versus the other. It really is blending both the disciplines and the people in them. Yeah. Yeah, I would say the common thread is a search for truth. This is so funny. So I turned to your uh, post reading the news, science and technology page. Mm-hmm. The, the first poem is, is, is Shelley, and I studied with her at Ezra Pound's Castle in northern Italy in 2005. Wow! That was just so crazy. Yeah. I was like, "Wait a second, is this the same uh, woman that I know?" And I looked, I looked it up. Yeah, we sure do. Not Shelley. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah. yeah, that was a really impressive piece. We actually, that was, I think, was the first submission we've received from her, and we actually plan to read it later in the podcast today. Well, well, that's what great. I, that, yeah. that's such a cool. She's going to be so yeah. Oh, what, what a great connection. She's probably listening right now. <laughs> we loved your work. <laughs> oh, this isn't mine. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Pre-recorded live. That's <laughs> alright. It's all great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell her. Actually, she could be listening right now. Should we read it now? Yeah. Why not? Yeah, that's all great. Right. Good excuse. Okay. Please. Please. No. You know, the tricky thing about this is um, the formatting. I can't exactly do it right because there's there's two lines where the not is crossed out. 
So just imagine that. Was the ambiguity so, of not, but not, not. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's. I feel like there should be a sound in there, like maybe a. Uh, Maybe you guys can do that post-production or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there should. That is exactly the same. Well, you know... I'll do my best. I have another thought here, but go, please, please. Okay. Something there. (laughs) So, yeah, this is a really interesting piece about how doctors found out that there is a new... Well, not new... But they f- <laughs> it's been there for a while. Yeah, but they found out there's an organ they had never had yeah, a yeah, name yeah. for, or or even they, considered they, an organ. They've been overlooking it, in essence. Yeah. Really? And it's this new organ it's beneath they- the skin that exists in the spaces between of the human body. Yeah. It's yeah. called the interstitium. Interstitium. Yeah. It's the 80th human organ discovered so far. Really? Yeah, they've just been draining it out. I do know about this because I listen to way too many podcasts. And I've listened to several different podcasts on this now. Um, And I think initially people were really excited about it. Unfortunately, the research has gotten some criticism now where it's maybe. I mean, it's still. It depends on how you define an organ, right? That's part of the issue, but it's also. I think some of some of this paper that came out was not reviewed properly, unfortunately. Okay, so there's, um, so there's some, some against this new. Well, and it, it also may it, it may turn out to be true, but I think this is the only paper on it so far, and right. there's still. And now, it, initially, when it came out, everyone was really excited about it, and I think there's now <laughs> been a little bit of backlash, and there's a little controversy sure. about whether it's. But it's still an interesting yeah. well, idea. Well, what's interesting is Shelley takes this idea of this, this place we've overlooked right in between things and sort of expounds upon where else that might be happening. And I think the interesting idea about that thing, about it, whether it ends up being true or not, was that was the idea, right, was most of the studies people had done on people's cells, right, were done after the cells were no longer living. So some of this didn't show up. And that was kind of the, that was the innovation of the study was was while it's living, you could see things you couldn't see when you were looking at no longer living cells. Yeah, I think that's actually potentially... Sorry, Pluto, you're no longer a plant. (laughs) (laughs) You're just a planetoid. So you're not an organ, but you're an organ. (laughs) Loving it. By the way, Shelley is also a big Fugazi fan and has features some Fugazi lyrics. Nice. <laughs> the first time it's happened in my editorial career, and I was so excited because Repeater is my favorite album of all time. <laughs> so, Jenna, would you like to do the honor of reading this amazing book? Yeah. This is called This Is Not a Poem About Grace. We published this on April 16th of this year by Shelley Pumak. Did I say that right? Shelley Pumak. Shelley Pumak. We have been analyzing the dead tissues too long, all wrong. The dead body on the autopsy table is just a stack of collapsed compartments, crawl space, attic, the walled over closet. We missed an entire organ, the interstitium, between the other spaces. And inside the interstitium, the stranger secreted the ex in the attic, the Jeremy in the basement, the homeless woman in the cupboard, the closet, discarded just like your intuition. 
the reports of lights, the stove warm when you swear you haven't touched it, the creaking and scraping, the money missing, and the Cheerios half eaten. Sometimes we are online, shopping to forget the families being bombed in their basements, and a stranger is watching through a peephole drilled through the crawl space. Sometimes those strangers in our houses are discovered by their little cups of pee. Sometimes the strange in our body is revealed by what seeps from those other spaces, like the space inside the barrel bomb that sloshes with nerve agent. You are not what you own. You are not what you leak. If the dead body on the autopsy table is a stack of collapsed compartments, crawl space, attic, bombed out apartment, then grace is the space where a family once hid. What strangers hide in me? And that was... Yeah. Yeah, that was This Is Not a Poem About Grace by Shelley Puhak. Um, She's a poet and essayist who lives in Baltimore, Maryland. She is the author of two books of poetry, the more recent of which is Guinevere in Baltimore, winner winner of the Anthony Hecht Prize. So yeah, thanks, Shelley, for sharing that with us. Yeah, that is work for sure. So I guess that's, that's, that, I mean, in some ways, I mean, I don't know, it's all very different, I guess, depending on what section you go to. But that, I think, is pretty illustrative of what is interesting about this project. To me, is it's not so much reporting the facts of those things, although the facts are in there. It is kind of expanding out on that. Like, I, I mean, that, was a, that one did a very good job of that in, in particular. Get, what are the things... It's almost like a categorization project in some ways of how do you fit other things in in the same category with whatever the topic of the, the jumping off point of the poem is in some ways. Right. I guess there's yeah. different strategies that people totally. do. Yeah, there are. Yeah, it's, it's diverse, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's the nature of reality of the lived moment to be making connections between things that have apparent similarities that maybe there isn't a particular venue. Um, to express them. And so, yeah, part of what we do is about that. So it's it's also room for a lot of other things. Yeah. One way we think about it is as a historical archive of how it feels to live through the current yeah, moment. Yeah, like an emotional archive mm-hmm. as well, yeah. which we'll get into as well. Do you want to read more? Or like, yeah. Yeah, maybe Yeah, maybe a different kind of... Yeah, I'd be happy to. <laughs> Let me figure that out. Okay, so this piece is uh, rather breaking. So David Buckle was a pioneering lawyer who championed LGBTQ rights, and the Sunday before last, he set himself on fire by dousing himself in fossil fuel gasoline in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And he left a letter explaining that he was doing it in an act of protest against our dependence on fossil fuels. And so the international community uh, is having you know, great reactions to his death, of course, in the manner that he died. Um, and in, you know, in terms of the message that he left with it. And a poet 
This piece is going to be, this piece is called My Early Death by Fossil Fuel, and it was written by Maddie Lane Glasgow. And let's do this. And it begins with a quote from the suicide letter. Quote, My early death by fossil fuel reflects what we are doing to ourselves. We are drawn to the self-immolation, claims of martyrdom, righteous or tragic or both, semantics of one's own chemical dependence. There is a dark patch of grass where he last sat, injustice weighing on his empathetic soul, on the heart that pulsed its own fuel through a contained system, all vein and artery, skin and flesh, life source staying where it belonged. I've read this before, earth as a bleeding body. We love to write ourselves bigger than our being, but this was no bloody end, nor will ours be. He left the metaphor behind, sealed, in a manila envelope out of the flame's reach. The conceit is his life's work. We are all equal, which is to say, we will burn the same. Call it an industry, call it energy, or call it what it is, the cause of death. I fear the future, as he must have. Each toxic breath, each muddy petrol pond, where a lake once shined for centuries. We love to fill our pockets fuller than our own foresight. Funny how profit, how convenience, blurs one's vision so easily. How we refuse to see ourselves in the flame. Prospect parks, once green blades, dark and heavy with our ash. I almost just want to say, can we have a moment of silence for him? You know? It's a very contentious choice to burn oneself alive, of course. You know, it is. Um, and there's a lot of conversation right now about whether someone agrees or disagrees with the method he chose to make that political point. And that's still unfolding right now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean I'm devastating he killed himself about. Yeah, I mean, it's just, he's such a movement leader. He's actually the lawyer who was featured in the movie Boys Don't Cry. He uh, was featured in the movie. I, he, he did the work that was, yeah. It was about that case. Um, right? He's not an actor. Well, no, but it didn't depict the, the, the trial. It just, he defended, or he was, yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. He was involved in that case. That wasn't He was the prosecutor for yeah. the murderers. Yeah. I see. Yeah, which is like, you know, that's like the most important role of the whole thing. <laughs> the prosecutor. Well, but, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not coming out one side or the other, but... I think the effectiveness of that, whatever you think about it, is you can't doubt someone's commitment to what they're talking about if they do something like that. That's an extreme act, and in a way that doesn't harm anyone except for yourself, which is kind of like the fullest commitment to something you can possibly do. Well, yeah, yeah, he did. Put, he did yeah. have a family. So. Well, okay. Yeah. It's harm. It's harm, right? Yeah. It's harm. It is. Um, I, I actually, you know, I think it was both heroic and um, barbaric at once. I think it occupies occupies a space of both, which is what makes it so complex. Um, but like you said, you can't doubt his commitment. He'd spent actually decades working um, in compost rights for New York. Uh, this is something that he defined his life with. 
Yeah. And so I really appreciated receiving this poem. I, it actually is how I found out about this subject is when we got the submission from uh, uh, Maddie Lane Glasgow, who did such an amazing job yeah. sort of articulating that, that complexity. And in, in that piece, I felt, um, rather than in the last one by Shelley that was expansive, I actually felt a, sort of a distillation of the, of the, like, having heard that piece right now, and having just, like, read, I think, maybe one quick article, and maybe one, like, medium-sized article about this topic, uh, that was like a crystalline distillation of the, of the situation. Almost yeah. in that poem, it was, yeah. it was different, it wasn't you know? Yeah, Shelley like opened it up. Yeah, and yeah. this one was yeah, more of like different, a, uh, different approaches. Yeah. And it wasn't a tribute yeah. piece. It wasn't. It was like more of a. It was like a yeah. I don't know. That makes sense. Like a state of affairs, almost right. Yeah, but it was also done with like empathy and like I mean, it, so, it brought yeah some human I, human aspect into something maybe that's like very reported as like this person did this in this place with this and this is how it happened. This, you know, right? It's not formulaic. But this is one of those ones, though, that I wonder, that too, though. So, what is the kind of... That almost seems like if you did know the story, and maybe it would make you go find the story, but it almost wouldn't make sense unless um, you went and sought out the story first. Yeah, so we do add context uh, to our website in two ways. Um, yeah, we add a read more section below poems so that people can read um, more. Obviously, <laughs> we link to news articles about it. Um, so, to find good ones too. <laughs> yeah, we we find good ones. <laughs> so we we uh, added links to both the New Yorker and Above the Law below it, and then I mean, yeah, we describe it in excerpts on the front page. Um, so with those two things, I think people can figure it out. Sometimes we yeah. actually also hyperlink. Within the work. Within the so work, yeah. We're definitely trying to, like, expand people's knowledge rather than just, like, reduce it down and, and kind of give them like, less context for, for what they're reading. We want them to know what it's about. That's a big part of it. Which then, ex- which then also expands the poems, right? If you if you end up becoming more informed about it, yeah, you can understand yeah. things in the poems you wouldn't. Yeah. Totally. It's meant to add to ongoing conversations that are happening in the wider world. Right. But it's supposed to contribute to that like, and be... On the level with it, yeah. Like the sheet, it's like the, the transparent sheet that goes over the the decode. Remember the case, the, with the magazines and your kids, and they give you the red plastic sleeve in the back. Yeah, and it's a weird the, metaphor. But yeah, the, well, no, 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 it's not a weird metaphor. Just think about what that did, right? What the what the red plastic thing did was it when you put it over the book, the the, the little area. It would it would it would not let certain things come through, so it would show one message. So if you think about those, you know, the idea of putting like the lens of poetry in the news over, mm. like um, you could have a, a, a browser extension, <laughs> well, <laughs> where where yeah. you could like, uh, hey, you I could watch the New Yorker with the with the poets reading the news browser extension, oh. and it would actually turn. That's actually the, a brilliant. That's a really good <laughs> idea. Yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna, gonna do that, that now. now. We're gonna do that <laughs> so, now. Yeah, know that. Uh, I'm sorry, but I was using the, ex- the extended metaphor here. You know what I mean, though? Like, it, well, it, yeah, and with the explosion of so many articles about every given topic. It's the reason I said it is because it's a lens. Like, this is a particular lens in which you could understand more so another story. Yeah, well, except the thing I don't like about that metaphor is, in the thing you're talking about, which n- no one that is younger than us is going to ever know, 
Oh, and uh, sure. probably. <laughs> so he's, you know, you're describing what you would get these. They were always red. It was red. Was That's what I'm saying. The so red plastic like, sleeve. The red plastic sleeve. So piece. you would have something printed. In red. Yeah. Yeah, so if, so if, oh, if you I put the that. red. No, the, 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 the things that you weren't. The things that were the noise were in red. Yeah, exactly. So when you put the red film on top, it would come cut out all the noise, and you would see the stuff. And I believe what was below it was yellow, because the red would be... The red would then the yellow would be more make pronounced make it blue. Yeah. I really want to see one of these. Yeah, yeah I'm lying around. <laughs> I don't. Archive of yours, I'd be uh, it was in the back of these magazines you would get these stickers and everything, stickers. for some it reason. Was it in kids, yeah. well, in Black, white, and red all over. It was in a lot of them, yeah, it was in a lot of those. Like, it would be in, like, um... Highlights. Highlights and stuff like that, yeah. 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 Plus, reading those in waiting rooms a lot. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that era. That was the so thing. there's maybe some part of that metaphor, but I think this is also almost the opposite because it's trying to expand out. Expand out, right. filter something out. No, no, no. I know, but in a certain way, like I guess there's a. I, I'm seeing your project as like it's a distillation of language and then an expansion. Like in you a certain way. Yeah. yeah, but one it really part varies so much because we don't actually like accept any particular, or we're not like uh, focused on any kind of type of work. So, like, all of the works are so diverse. Like, if you go through our archives, like, you're not, you know, you're going to find stentos, you're going to find bastinos, you're going to find haikus, you're going to find, you know, in, like, so many different styles and voices, perspectives. It's very diverse, you know? So, it definitely can do a lot of actions. In that way. Okay, so maybe that's a good time to talk about this. How do you decide what goes into... Right, we get, we definitely have a lot of submissions, um... You know, I mean, for me, personally, it's like I'm looking for strong writing. It's a very classic thing to look for. It's what I want to see, and it's what I want to publish, because if I publish something, it doesn't necessarily mean I agree with the content or the perspective, because we very much are committed to being um, sort of non-denominational, if you will, in regards to political content, because there's just so many points of view out there. But I do want the writing to have strength and integrity and show craft, um, an interesting craft. And... Yeah, Jenna, do you want to ask that? Yeah. Um, yeah, we look for things that are going beyond what we've already heard. Um, Definitely. We publish emerging writers, we publish students, we publish established writers alike. Um, we publish work from all over the world. We publish some things that are not in English. Um, we publish a lot of art, too. All of our work is accompanied by art. You know, every every poem goes along with yeah, art. Yeah, though I wouldn't say, like, we're open to art submissions. Mm, it's yeah. It's not like what we do. It's not the focus, yeah. No. But. Yeah, we're very much, like, we encourage people to submit their work. And yeah, like, as you put it, like, we're looking for that, that voice that hasn't been articulated yet. That's a really great way of saying it. When you see, you get a lot of submissions, are you getting, like, dozens a day? Like, dozens a day? Like, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. Happens, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, it depends. Yeah. Like, with the CDC band word thing, we got maybe yeah. 30, 40 pieces about that. Wow. And you just had mm -hmm. to pick one? We picked a few of them. A couple, okay. Yeah. 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 So I guess your turnaround has to be pretty fast, because it needs to be... Yeah, yeah, that's We're one thing. We're the fastest <laughs> editors in the game for a reason, okay? So, yeah, we actually, yeah, if we get a breaking piece about a new story and we, you know, we both read the piece, that's one of the rules. Um, we both agree with the work. You know, we try to move fast within, you know, we can 
we're usually around a laptop and we always have our phones, so we're in a position where we can publish pretty quickly. And we try to get back to writers within a day or two. Um, you know, sometimes we respond within an hour. It really depends. Um, but yeah, one of the ideas behind this project is, you know, to keep up with the headlines. It is a, it is a media platform. It's a news platform for us. We really treat it that way. So as editors, we definitely believe our role is to, you know, pace ourselves accordingly. Yeah, even if it's like New Year's Eve. Even if it's, especially if it's New Year's Eve. Yeah, that's right. There are a lot of news stories on New Year's Eve. Yeah. So we have editorial <laughs> meetings every single day. We just came, we actually walked over here after having one just now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like a lifestyle choice. So what is the what is the space that you're filling here that maybe normal news doesn't fill? Yeah, um, one thing we like to do is we like to go beyond the news cycle um, in terms of timing. So one failing that I see in traditional corporate media is that they so quickly move on from a story. So you can be reading about Puerto Rico one day and everybody will be covering it and then the next week there's hardly any coverage yeah Yeah, you might forget there's even a problem persisting there yeah so yeah it can really lead to this kind of like cultural amnesia i think to forget um what is still happening what is still affecting people and um it you know it's a problem also in terms of aid like if if the wider public is has forgotten about a natural disaster even if it's still affecting the community deeply, then there, you know, there's not that kind of aid and support coming in. So, um, and those narratives aren't getting shared. Though. And those narratives aren't getting shared. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we were publishing about Hurricane Harvey, for example, for months. We're still publishing work about the Parkland shooting mm-hmm. and its ramifications because these things are, are felt deeply for a long time. So I guess, so do you think there's like an inadvertent, shaping of the narrative. I mean, there's this kind of idea in journalism of this attempt to remove bias, but mm. is it somewhat of a false thing? Is, is, is there this other inadvertent shaping of the narrative that happens by trying to remove bias in some way? Such a great question. Very complicated question. That's a great question. Well, one way the journalists, I've noticed, have been doing that is like very much placing them you know, where are they coming from? Have they seen something like this before? How had their upbringing or professional career um, shaped what they were looking at and how they contextualized it? I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's wonderful because it it's true that no matter what, those things will always be there, whether we're talking about them or not. I don't want them to infringe upon the story too much that it becomes, you know, really um, sort of obsessed with the writer. But I also think, like, you need to state things that are effective much as you possibly can, because they're there whether we're acknowledging them or not. Yeah, and then there's also the issue of, like, you know, um, uh, traditional journalists use the language of, of power in a lot of ways, kind of official language, but um, as Abigail Carl Klassen said in a recent panel, she's talking about how poets can use vernacular language, you know, language of the people, and that is part of the story, how people are talking about it. Yeah, that's um, right. So it's, it's kind of an opening up of, of the discourse about any, any given thing. Yeah, I mean, journalists are tasked with giving very dry, factual accounts. Um, Not exclusively, but a lot of them, right? 
It's not exclusively. Well, I would say, yeah, that I would actually, I would argue that like, you know, the passion and the emotional content of what's going on is not always very well communicated in mainstream sort of journalism. So I think that's something that definitely like poetics can step forward and provide. In fact, that's one of the reasons I wanted to start this project is because I saw like, you know, like when a school shooting happened or when Pulse happened, when, you know, these really tragic events would just grip us, like, you could read the facts, but, you know, there's just so much more emotional overspill than what you could see in that single column article, um, even just listing victims or talking about, you know, yeah. what had happened. There's just, like, so much feeling, and it's it's not getting contained there, and it, it's way beyond the margins, even. And so poetry is, like, you know, one of the services it does for humanity, one of the reasons it's so ancient is it is a language of mourning and grief, and it can contain those very human elements. Um Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have to worry about that. Um, so, you know, yeah, that's one of the, the purposes of this project is to give that um, space and articulation. Yeah, that's well put. I would say it's also uh, often a language of dissent poetry. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of the, I've read um, the history of it isn't entirely clear, but read that one of the earliest words for poet was, um, was scop, S-C-O-P. And people think that the word that that came from later became scold, um, something to do with, with dissent, with, with objection. Hmm. Do you know where that word, what country or what culture oh, that came from? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, it's an old English word. Yeah. Different types of poets, right? Because Plato talks about that in his Republic. He talks about there's different types of poets. There's the poets who are allowed to stay within the, the society because they're the the, the the ones that sing and play songs and entertain the people. And there's a whole different group of poets. Plato there. didn't like poets too much. But no, but he banned But no, no, no. But he mentions it that there's two different types. That there's there's the poets of descent, and they're banished from the Republic. And then there's the there's the the, the jesters, the poets who make people sing and dance. Right. But 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 the limits of that is these poets are causing trouble. These poets are for entertainment purposes. Yeah, he lets those ones stay. Yeah, he kicks the rest of them out. <laughs> right? Isn't oh my gosh. That's in the Republic. He, he talks about that. Okay. Pretty much. Now now I'm going to post a link to the because <laughs> this week's existential comics was all about that part of the Republic. Oh, was it really? <laughs> but I like interesting. But I do think it's. I mean, I mean, dissent has gone mainstream, though. You know what I mean? Has gone so it's like yeah. that's a really common but, thing to interact. I don't think it's so exceptional to be giving. Well, yeah, dissent's, you know, dissent's gone mainstream because, like, you know, there's like there's like people wearing these like Che Guevara shirts. You know, I mean, that's like that's that's, that's dissent gone mainstream. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the commodification of dissent, it's, which kind of erases the thoughts behind it. Right. It's putting the red. Who who had the album with the red star? Like the like. Uh, anyway, yeah, it doesn't matter. Well, it was like, well, it was like, um, this has been co-opted, you know? I mean, I, I, I kind of wanted to talk about this when, when I, we first stumbled on poetry in the news, you know? I mean, I'm like, I'm like, like, believe in sort of like the Guy Debord understanding of the society, the spectacle, like situations international, mm-hmm. the, the view of the fact that like news is basically, it's fucked. It's co-opted already. So it's hard to like, co- it's hard to use the language of something that's already co-opted. And then re and then recalled it again, but that's what you're. Well, well, no, that, 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 I mean, if I, w- I think that you're, 
you're really on, you're really onto something with poetry and music because because you're you're co-opting and taking you're you're taking it back, right? Because we talked about the, the way that these journalists are forced to fall into this uh, very specific thing. Yeah, there's a dearth of independent And I can tell you right now, from sure. being a journalist who's written for the local paper, yeah. they even whitewashed my articles about a, a historic story about bullfighting that happened here in the 1850s. Like, they, they whitewashed my story. Just about a culture piece, a historic culture piece. They made me take out all these finer details that they literally didn't like. What were their objections to it? Uh, I, I wasn't allowed to talk about like the, the ways that they treated the the, the roosters during cockfighting. Was just considered too violent for like a, a newspaper, or yeah, the, the editor came in and said, "We're you know we're a, we're a family newspaper, and this article that you submitted is PD thirteen uh, bordering rated R." And I'm like, "Why?" Because I, I talk about the details of, of 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 blowing hot pepper and 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 whatever up the nose of a rooster, like in order to incite incite it to fight in, in the rain, and they didn't like all these like gruesome details of, of, like, animal baiting and animal fighting. Mm. And they, like... Well, I mean, they literally took everything out that was even remotely graphic. And, and then, you know, it has the effect of people just not knowing the history at all. And this was an opportunity to really... Yeah. And, and, I, and I actually worked with, like, a media historian to, like, write this thing correctly, who has, like, 10 years of newspaper writing and reporting. And I just published it... I just published the, the longer version on my own website. So it was fine. Right. But, but it was, like, this... this it like, was the experience of being... Like with a local newspaper, yeah. I was like, "What you take? You're doing what? You remember what happened?" Yeah. Like, did what they the did they include a note saying, "You know, there was part of these articles that were too graphic to share." <laughs> they <laughs> actually, I asked her to do that. I actually asked her to say, "You can read uh, an expanded edition of this at noladna.com," and they did put it. They in. did that, yeah. And that was nice that they did that. She did still do that, yeah. But it was like it was like a scolding. It was like this is you know it was it was like literally like this is a family newspaper. You can't be writing about this and this and this and. <laughs> It, was, it, it wasn't just like, hey, we have to edit this out for these such and such purposes. It was actually kind of like a scolding. What is, what is a family newspaper? <laughs> You're looking at it. That's, well, I, I, like, how do you write about I chemical gassing in Syria? Yeah, or, or, yeah. Yeah, or, like, or, or, like, or like, or like the, the, you know, the, the, the shooting uptown that happened last weekend or whatever, you know, like a family newspaper when they're How do you reporting. write about Stormy, like Stormy Daniels, you know? It's like... Yeah. Well, but I think, but I mean, I think that's what it comes down to, and it's complicated, right? But all these constraints creep up for various reasons, whether it's for capitalistic reasons of wanting to sell something, or whether it's for ostensibly ethical reasons. There's unintended consequences of those constraints a lot of the times, right? I mean, the 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 idea behind those constraints are sometimes good. But you, ha- you you don't always consider all the other effects that it has down the line on yeah. on what information you're getting across. Well, I think there's also a trend in journalism to be more graphic, though. I'm seeing words that I never would have seen growing up that I see, like even in the New York Times, like cursing is maybe more common, maybe more specific if they're discussing something that might have been titled disturbing or not safe for work or whatever you would say. You know what I mean? That that trend is. And I think it's because it's like we, we have so many unfiltered streams in our lives now. Like there's less reason or less you know logic in trying to curtail yeah. um, the journalism because it's it's not like anyone couldn't find it at another venue and maybe would even push someone to go to that other venue. Right, and um, our president is an unfiltered stream. Yeah, there's no literally no way to even report on what Donald Trump is doing because most of what he's doing is through, Trump, is through a tweet where he's cursing and like saying and like bullying somebody anyway. So it's like. 
Good luck being a journalist and trying to keep it family friendly anyway, you know? Can, can we make sure that we, we put a beep where you say Donald Trump's name? Every time anyone ever says that name, it's like a beep. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because that's what we should do. We should be censoring the name of that person and making that a curse word, an unacceptable well, word to use in the news. I know, I'm, I'm just kidding. I mean, that, you know what I mean, though? I'm all about saying Voldemort, okay? Yeah, Voldemort's good. Yeah. <laughs> Voldemort's the president. The name that should not be spoken. He should not be named. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I do. Yeah, that's kind of a. You can't. Even if you want to, you can't really filter things anymore. It's, it's almost an impossibility. It's yeah. And we're in a moment right now, too, right? I mean, you said it, like, where the president is is coming out and basically directing his news cycle through his tweets. And that's what's happening. We're, we have a president who's, who's essentially directing his own news cycle through his whatever time he decides to tweet at whatever time of the day. And, 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 and we have a president who's calling out news sources as being fake. And... You know, we're we're and in constantly, the past, we're in well, the constantly lying, right? Well, Nixon <laughs> did the same thing with the Washington Post. I mean, he straight up did. Yeah. You know, he yeah. called, he he they they were publishing stuff about him. He didn't like it, and he called them fake. He basically came out and said fake news, and he did everything he could to to, to stop them. And then they and then they blew the blew the top off of his whole thing. But but like you know, you have in the past maybe there was just like an understanding where like maybe the presidents knew these things and they're whatever. And well, that's they, the thing is our president didn't... is totally unrestrained. He doesn't care about decorum. He doesn't care about precedent. He's he's doing, yeah, exactly what he feels like doing. That apology, was, which is exactly what appeals to a lot of his supporters. Right, so it's like we're at a moment. Like, we're in a flashpoint. We're in this weird flashpoint with this presidency where, like, where, like journalism is being called into question and, you know, and our social media has been co-opted and we're, and we're, and, 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 and there's, a, there's, a, there's essentially, a, there's essentially yeah. a, 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 a it's essentially a, a I, I don't know what exactly the word I want to use is, but it's a, uh, it's a, it's a sort of like a, um, it's a coup d'etat on I mean, the American mind or something. You know, I was just in a conversation today and I was making the argument that I actually think poets reading the news is the anti-fake news. And the reason why is because um, on the spectrum of news, you know, truth and lie, what is, you know, a really good rebuttal to, you know, the fake news crisis, which is, you know, obviously largely invented, but also, you know, has a lot of, you know, real actual uh, outcomes. And my answer, I think, is to go deeper into yourself and deeper into your own writing and your own perspective and to offer that up as, like, the, the opposite of yeah. like, just invented content. It's like, what if you're, like, really deeply sourcing instead of, like, from your own being, from your own perspective? Using your own critical uh, thinking skills. Sure. Yeah. We like yeah. to call it the anti-skim, which mm-hmm. is kind of like an editorial joke because, yeah. you know, so much of... The news is meant to be skimmed over quickly, or just that you are spo- are allowed to get most of the information from the headline. Wasn't there a really great um, data point you shared recently with me about how most people are just reading the headlines, in fact, they're not reading the news articles beneath them? Yeah, there was a um, 2014 study, um, who was that by, I could pull was it up. It like the Bureau, the Center for Media, Democracy or something? Yeah, it's, it's in 2014. There was a study where um, basically 60% of Americans said that they didn't read beyond the headlines, and um, I can pull that up for you so you can put it in your show notes or whatever. But um, the yeah, so with poetry, you know, a lot of poems get better by rereading them, by looking deeper, by figuring out what was the meaning behind um, behind different words, um, which is why we call it anti-scan. It really does foster critical thinking skills. 
Yeah, so you got it because the poems themselves are kind of sparse. It's like it really does encourage you to do your own research and, and to read the, the articles that not only are we listing beneath it, um, but, you know, just to do, yeah, your own investigation into what the story is. And because the poets are kind of leaving like almost like a breadcrumb trail of like different um, reference points that, and you, you want to understand the work fully, it forces you to really understand the issue. And so in that way, it definitely is, it is fostering more critical thought, and also comprehension of what's going on. Actually, sorry, um, I'm pulling it up, that data. So, yeah, it was a study by Media Insight Project, which, will this pull up footnote? So you don't have any plans for any type of um, sort of repackaged clickbait uh, uh, releases by poets <laughs> reading the news? That would be like, the daily headlines that you find that are most that are the, like the most uh, trending headlines, just in the in the po- in the poem, and then it's just a haiku. That would be like clickbait for poetry in the news, right? <laughs> I don't even know. Because, well, like I'm saying, like if you're if you're saying like no one reads past the headlines, yeah. So if poetry in the news had a version of like a, an art, like a, a, a mass media version of cl- like clickbait articles, right? <laughs> They would be they would be haiku if they were on poetrythenews.com, It would be haiku that only uses words that are trending in that moment. Man, you want to join the tutorial team? You know what I'm saying, right? It's like oh, oh trying to title the words oh, so no one would open them. Somebody's trending like Trump's trending on this topic right now. Like blast out a quick haiku, and then that's that's your Twitter feed. That could be part of your Twitter. Feed. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it may up your readership. I mean, it may just be a tactic to up your readership. <laughs> we, we have gotten submissions where people just sent in Trump's tweets that were, like, had more line breaks in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there have been a few poets that Not do that, that project, independent of us. That, yeah. There's the inherent poeticism of the president's tweets himself. You know? It's like, it's kind of amazing. It's a great moment to Oh, there's definitely you know, no lack of content for you. It's pretty package, pretty, pretty line broken. You have to have a certain uh, taste for absurdity. Yeah, find definitely that. true. Definitely. Yeah, it's a time for poets and a time for comics, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to read another piece? I'd love to. So this is a piece about a man named Sahid Basil, and he was killed by the New York police this year, quite recently, actually. And almost exactly 10 years ago, his best friend was also shot by the NYPD. So he suffered from mental illness and was known to local police officers. But when the day that he was killed, he someone called the police and cops who didn't know him, didn't know his situation, weren't familiar with the neighborhood, came in and he was, so he was holding a metal pipe, if I understand it, and the cops shot and killed him. So this piece is also just about this pattern of of violence against black men because both of them, both of them, both Sahid and his friend were black. And this piece is called My Best Friend Was Murdered Again, and it's written by Amy Challenger. We published it on April 9th, 2018, so just a couple weeks ago. This morning, my best friend was murdered again, and yesterday, in front of St. Matthew's, he was butchered. And the day before, I swept the barber shop floor while my best friend lay dead by the door. And a few years ago, he broke down, screeching like the neighbor's rat, at the bus stop where I sat. No insurance covers this kind of sick mental shit. No booze buries the boy, man, damned, reeling, dead, in bipolar head. No bed is made for me, sick, they say, but my friend was killed today, 
as my body rocked in holes, shot by cops, and nobody knows how to stop this illness. It grows and grows on streets like mine. Oh, man. My best friend died, and so did I, in Brooklyn. Yeah. So, this is actually kind of an exceptional story, because, of course, unfortunately, and quite tragically, and in a totally objectionable way, objectionable way, these stories are very frequent, but it's a question of whether they're getting picked up by national news and read. And this story was exceptional in the sense that it did make the New York Times front page, um, at least on its digital website. And, um, yeah, it's, it's this kind of level of, like, tragedy that poetry really can step in and, and describe the cyclical nature to these really uh, tragic patterns in American life. Yeah. Violence so, beginning by violence, right? That's right. And so that's why, you know, it begins and it's like, uh, this morning my best friend was murdered and yesterday and the day before and a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but that, yeah, and that's one of the things I like about your project is I feel like there's a general sense of this exasperation at the way that those things are covered in the news is not helping address the problems. You got it. In any sort of way. And that, that, that letting people, I don't know. I think that's a good way of expressing that. And it's it's still relating it to the, the actual factual things that are happening. Yeah. I mean, the sense of exhaustion in this piece is so visceral and so present. It does capture that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, after you die, there were, huge protests over his death. Um, so maybe that's part of the reason why it got picked up in lots of news sources. It's, yeah, it's strange how the news decides which, which deaths to prioritize. That is an interesting thing, you know, uh, that there's these names that sort of echo through us and now it's like the list of names just gets longer and longer and longer if it's, if it's you know, it's like the, um, the, the, the third flashpoints in the national news, like the national news, like Trayvon Martin, you know, like there was these, there, you know, and, there, and there's these, there's these names, these names that come up, Oscar Grant, you know, like, it's just, it's really a small uh, percentage of what's getting reported, right? I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the challenge. And that's the, that's the thing that's scary too, is because are there, are there people who are, uh, dying of sort of like this epidemic of, 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 of gun violence or um, sort of like uh, police violence or these sort of things that are happening of these like statistics that come out, talk about uh, the, the, the numbers, the, the staggering numbers of uh, for America right now. But we're not really hearing, you know, there's no, there's no like RSS feed or bulletin board of like people who get shot like by the cops like every day in like any community in the country, you know, mm. I'm sure that there's other things that are happening that aren't getting reported or aren't getting picked up in this like sort of viral media. Uh, you, you know, like if, if it's like um, we talked about the news cycle and we talk about like how quickly things come at us. Right. And there was, it was like, there was like a, something that was going on in the news. I mean, oh, it feels like almost like this all the time now. Where like there was a mass shooting, and then there was something else that went out that happened like two weeks later or a week later. It was like just seven days later, and then it almost seemed like the mass shooting like was out of out of our minds, and we had moved on to like another 
tragic event that happened, you know? Mm. That's, that's like the thing that like blows me away or like that I can't, I have a hard time keeping up with is that there's just, you know, how much is really going on like in, in a sequence, you know? Yeah. It seems like we're like in a flurry of like trap, like intense mass shootings in America right now. Like, like nothing we've ever seen. It's really, it's just like, totally. You know, the violence has become one of you know, we, our most published categories now. Because do, do we, we so many works from that. Do we forget about Mandalay Bay? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Do, do we, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and like, like a lot just of like, pieces. Wait, yeah, that yeah. was insane. That was like seventy people. Mm. I think it's fifty nine. Fifty nine. Cl- I know that was the night. That, like, yeah, but we but still though, like that, like what you know, is it is that getting different attention because it was like people had a country music festival? Maybe, but also because of the size. Right. It was the biggest one ever. Yeah. Yeah. So like so like I mean, to me it's almost like maybe I'm not like in my like mental in my like uh sort of personal geography of the world. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't have as much attachment to say like, um, Las Vegas as I do to, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's like, it's like the news comes so fast and there's so many, so much tragedy that's, that's happened in this like senseless gun violence. And I mean, we're, we're talking specifically about gun violence and sort of like that whole, uh, topic, but, um, it's moving so fast, you know, and, the, and, 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 I'm almost like, I can't keep up with how, you know? We actually it's almost like we're waiting for the next one. Well, that's and exactly... It's like such a sad feeling that I have right now. Yeah. But I, I can't resist the fact that I have that feeling. Right. Because, I mean, we haven't had any legislative successes. No. So, I mean, of course we're just waiting for the next one. There's been no change. Yeah. Actually, the, the day, the very day that Parkland happened, and that was breaking news, uh, one of our writers named Larry D. Thacker released a piece that was meant to be, you know, a really uh, generic news article about a school shooting. And before we knew how many had died, or I think he even wrote it before um, it had become known that the shooter had been caught, Nicholas Cruz. Uh, And he created it with a a lot of blanks, just uh, making this generic article without even the specificity of where or who. It was just, you know, because it's become so cyclical, so patterned, and we've seen so many instances of it, we couldn't even write the articles ourselves without knowing any of the actual details. It almost, you know, so, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of the pieces we've written about, or not that we've written, a lot of the pieces we've published about gun violence really speak to the fact that it is, like, this momentum and this velocity to these these tragedies that it's just, like, hard to even, the, spin, the spinning is so fast, it's hard to even create shapes out of it anymore. And that's, like, a huge phenomenon of living in this present day, being so connected and knowing, like, these grander and grander scales of the tragedy keep occurring and we know inside that it's going to be worse next time and that you know it's just another record to break and somebody wants to because of the attention and because we you know offer so much coverage to the to the perpetrators of these these acts of violence um there's like this really despairing expectation that lives in us now particularly in regards to gun violence knowing that it's going to get worse yeah and And it's also a daily occurrence in many communities and it's a daily occurrence in many communities and I mean, but I would say mass shooting. Mass shooting, yeah. Mass shooting isn't. Yeah. But what I mean, was mass that shooting stat? is, like, oh. the scale of it now, you know? Yeah. What yeah. was that stat you had about, um, like, unintentional uh, gun deaths? Well, there's this great website, this really remarkably uh, essential web- website called the um, Gun Violence Archive that I reference often, especially when I'm writing newsletters to our audience. What was, which one are you exactly? The one where it's just, like, unintentional deaths? Yeah. Um, like that's not really reported on, but it's a huge number of people who just 
you know, kids pick up the gun, accidentally shoot themselves. Or, yeah. Yeah, like this year we've had 17,443 total number of gun incidents with 4,400, over 4,400 deaths from guns. Wait, just in 2018? What? what? Yeah. 4,400? It's right here. That's staggering. That's right. It is staggering. Um, and 69 victims of mass shootings. But there's like no accretion of those events. I mean, they're reported referencing past events in the sense that it fits into this narrative of how that wants to be presented. But there's not the accretion in the same way. Like you were saying in certain communities, like if you're living in certain neighborhoods in New Orleans, that's a daily occurrence. I mean, you know, I certainly have students where that's like a part of their daily life. Absolutely. Yeah. And that for them, that's a different kind of accretion. It's not like, oh, this is a thing that occasionally appears in the news. Well, and that's like the piece you read, like, you know, my best friend died again. Like, I don't, maybe that was being somewhat used metaphorically there, but for some people, it's not metaphorical at all. That's for the people that she's writing about. That's yeah. Right. Man accused of shooting officer four others, right? It happened yesterday. Violent crime spree, chase ended arrest. But that's, I think that's maybe why the emotional part of that is important, because that those things adding up into a larger thing that they actually are doesn't get communicated necessarily in the way those things are reported, right? Right, yeah, how trauma lives in our bodies and can get re-triggered by other things, and you can feel that trauma um, come back Uh Different triggers. I definitely think that, you know, there's so much panic about mass shootings and it's deserved, but definitely we're overlooking the fact that like gun violence is an everyday occurrence, especially in the inner city. I grew up in Oakland where, you know, gun violence was like at all time highs during the nineties and two thousands. It was not irregular to go to school and know that someone had a gun on them in my classroom. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Like we definitely overlook it and prioritize based on, you know, who are being the victims. If they're like, you know, um, high school student, you know, the Parkland, Survivors definitely, like, were really great in that they pointed out the reason we're being given this platform is because we're coming from this rather, you know, um, privileged uh, school and district. And, you know, we, we did have a great education. We can speak eloquently and directly about this. Um, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of... And they know, provide space for folks yeah, to talk uh, at the March for Our Lives yeah. who are affected by daily gun violence in their communities. Yeah. And I, yeah, I appreciate this connection. Yeah. Good act of solidarity. This guy went on a spree, shot up a house, jacked a car, then returned to the scene of the original crime where the cops were there processing the scene. Oh my god. Shot shot at the cops, ended it, ended it on in a high speed chase where he flipped his car and then he ran and held up a, a convenience store. When Th- that's this just in, yesterday. This is in New Orleans. On your at nineteen hundred St. Rock Avenue yesterday. Yeah. Is that close to here? It's just down the street by the, the St. Rock Mark, by where the, by where um, the poetry festival was. Oh my was. gosh. 1900 St. Rock. Daily news. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I mean, that's just like. Well, yeah, and I mean, that is, a, that is a good point, too, that there's a lot of, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things locally that never make the national news. Like, the, the, all those things. There, that are there just, would be no space for it. This is a very yeah. big country, and it's so common that guns are. And yeah. all throughout the country. Right. How many people have AR-15s right now? Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> that happened right near the healing center, too. 
Just yesterday. And I've been hearing so much about Sunday how Sunday night he went on a spree. It says he went on a spree on Sunday night and it explains hearing. the whole thing. One of the interesting things about coming to the New Orleans Poetry Festival is like talking to people about how New Orleans, and particularly the neighborhood this festival is held in, Bywater has changed over the last decade. Um, yeah, and, like, yeah. I've gotten so many different perspectives on it. Like Some people feel bitter because it's getting gentrified. Other people um, said that it was getting better, that you couldn't walk around at night, and now you can. And then a local said, you know, it's nice below St. Claude, but above it's quite violent. I don't know. It's just kind of a Ooh, That's complicated. I don't think you want to get into it. I don't want to. That. That's the thing. Well, I don't really want to get into it, but it's just been an aspect of, of like, you know, just, like, thinking about, like, you know, the, the violence that's occurring in this neighborhood or the changes it's going through and, you know, that's really... Yeah, um, that, is, that is, I mean, yes, I mean, I have a lot of feelings with that. I don't like those changes so much, but I don't know that that's really creating any of that. It's just shifting where it is around a little bit is what happens. You just move it to another, you just push it over to another neighborhood or mm-hmm. move it around. Uh, huh. I don't know. But anyway, maybe, yeah. maybe, 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 <laughs> in this... We can move away from these very important, but also very dark topics. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing I like about your site is, I think some of the things become kind of funny and absurd when they get treated in poetry form, some of the more whimsical news stories. Do you have any things like oh, that that you remember that have come up? For sure we do. Yeah. I like that question. You know, that's one thing we don't have is we don't really have like an explicit like humor section to the site. We've talked about doing it, um, but it's true that a lot of the submissions, a lot of the work we do in the publishing is dealing with these darker sides of humanity and the world, its political systems, its environmental degradation. It's, you know, it is, it's very, it's very heavy lifting we're doing with this work. Um, you know, yeah. something we could look into is doing like more of the humorous work to kind of give that lighthearted thing, because that's another thing that poetry is quite famous for is like, you know, making very harsh realities palatable um, through, you know, creating laughter out of out of things that seem impossible to even reckon with. Right. A bit of um, and so writers out there who are listening, if you know if you know you have that that sound, we definitely, you know, love to laugh. What about love a to cry. Sex? <laughs> I'm just gonna say this. I, yeah, I was waiting to say and he jumped on it. You know, I was thinking comics you know, and I was actually, also thinking of a caption contest. Joseph, I was gonna ask if yeah, if you've ever seen like poetics and no, you know, or in the news that you've seen. And all your archives and everything. And wait, wait, what? So what? So wait, what's well, the exact question? Have you seen that done? You know, I mean, isn't it already kind of happening? Yes. I mean, and I can reach over here to my right and probably pull something off this little stack. Because I think you can. Well, give I think them, what, Yeah, I think you could give them some public domain comics. There could totally. be. There could be a contest where you just white out the white out white out the the bubbles. A specific news. You story give them a blank comic and you give them a news story, and they have to fit it into those comic panels. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> I'm down. That that would be, I think, a comic. A comic section would be very, very cool. And there could be something really way. funny. That's right. the funniest poet we have. So we're gonna bring Jeff right. We're gonna bring you on Jeff right. He's the reason we're in New Orleans. You know, no, that's great. That's great. Jeff Reinhardt. That's like perfect. You know, he's. He's a phenomenal guy. It was just so much fun hanging out with him and getting to talk to him after, because we've been, like, corresponding over the last, you know, since we started. He was one of, actually, I think one of the first ten works that we published, one of them was his. And we sort of reached out to him and said, hey, we're starting this project. We haven't met yet. Would you be interested in sending us something? And he was just so phenomenally supportive from the beginning. Um, so it would be really great to 
read something by him because he definitely has that talent of bringing that lighthearted energy to things that can feel really dark um, and heavy. Mm. In fact, yeah. Actually, reading one of his poems when I was like really depressed one day, like it actually like, changed my day, lightened up the whole week. It was great. Nice. Yeah, he's great fun. It's it's rare that you meet somebody through email and are able to like get their part personality <laughs> so much. Um, to meet up with him and be like, "Oh, you're exactly what I expected you to be," and it's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Every single, almost every poem he writes has some sort of joke in it too. Like, there's at least one smile per poem, no matter how <laughs> how dark he's going. This Okay, so this is by sorry, this is Santa as a Young Viking by Jeffrey Cyphers, right? My it's it's funnier if you hear him read it, actually. Definitely. Yeah. So. <laughs> so yeah, here we go. My mother was a Viking, my father a Dane, my mother was a stitch, my uncle a thane. My province lies north of tomorrow. The bone-white landscape, simulating peace. Once I built an imaginarium, and the magi still come. I'll give you a tip. Review your stocks. I'm going to need a lot of coal this year. And don't be asking for silver or gold, titles or deeds, awards or absolution. I bring only belief. Belief in love and its veil of covalence. I live with some elves now. We make toys for fun, out of resolution. Um, I think he prefaced that when he read that yesterday by saying that his mother was... Do you remember that? No. So, I remember a lot. <laughs> this weekend, to be honest. <laughs> I had a really good time. I don't remember things. And thanks for being on the show. Like, I'm just kidding. I, I, yeah, it's the you know, one thing that Jeffrey said, though, that really stuck out to me is he said... Some of these works just were would would not have existed, would not have been written without poets reading the news there to to give a platform to them. And that's something we've heard from writers a lot, which is just, you know, there is you know, you need a, a venue, a space that you know you can send your work, that it will be received by your peers, by other people, by readers, and that, you know, it's just like the most touching thing you can hear as an editor is to know like you're helping bring new work into the world. But that's a nice thing about it too, is that it's Again, which, I mean, I don't know, I feel like we talk about that all the time, but anyways, where you expand the readership of poetry to people who wouldn't normally read poetry is a nice thing in and of itself. Yeah. Because right? I'm sure there's a lot of people who come to your site who would not be reading poetry otherwise. I'm sure it's a mix. There's some people who are coming there because it's poetry, but then there's some people who wouldn't be reading poetry that yeah. are coming to it. There's a lot of inroads to this website. There's a lot of inroads to the project. And There's a lot of interest in poetry, yeah. I mean, we do that through our events, too. We um, do these yeah. super dynamic kind of happenings where we bring together different types of artists and poets. Um, from different mediums. From different mediums, yeah, to talk about something that's, you know, in the cultural conversation. So, for example, we had an event that was the day before Trump's inauguration, and we had poets talk. We had, we had a dancer who was amazing, Amelia was a takeaway bonilla. And we also had like a conversation um, in order to build some community community and allow people a space to talk about what was going on for them at that moment. Yeah. 
there's a lot. Of, yeah, there's a lot of ways of articulating this project in terms of like the events and also the the publishing. And a lot of it is like, yeah, like getting people to step outside of their comfort zones or take their world offline for a moment or taking their eyes away from the same news that they've been reading over and over again to do something different and unexpected and hopefully to find some hope in that and you know a perspective they've never considered before. Yeah, because you know so many of us have. Um have the majority of our political discussions online, right? Absolutely. Which can be very di- and that can be yeah. difficult and it's divisive. And you can lose friends on Facebook that way very easily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so have that face to face. I think is really it's, integral. And it's also some of the hardest work you can do. Mm. You know what I mean? We're not trained anymore to have these kind of discussions face to face at all. We don't, you know, we don't have those lessons. But the thing is, I think that the the outcomes of face to face IRL, as I like to call them conversations is like a lot more powerful than agreeing with someone or giving a like or a little emoticon that you know affirms or detracts from what they've done you know that's how we build bridges i think that's how we get out of this is to start creating connections um that weren't there before and to do it in you know a very you know welcoming approachable way and when you say get out of this do you mean i mean get out of this whole damn situation <laughs> with uh i mean it's like a pretty preposterous statement on some respects, but I actually do believe that, yeah, to get out of this, this sense of, like, yeah, this fracturing of the country, and, you know, that's where allyship really comes in, is, like, you know, creating these bridges and, and helping people see the humanity in each other that's been forgotten and allows for this political abstraction to occur that can elect someone like Donald Trump, for example, or believe, as you might put it in later, or whatever. Um, yeah, I really, really feel that way. Like, a lot of this is about, you know, creating new, more human and humane and compassionate approaches the things we've been taking for granted with our old media. Well, thank you all. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank today. you so much. Yeah, really, really interesting topics. Here. I mean, we love your project, and we're gonna we're gonna link that. And if you have any other links that we should put up other than to your site itself, please give us those. But yeah, no, we really enjoyed having you all on here today. It was so awesome. I want. I'm into. I want to submit. Yeah, please. Oh my god, it would be great for both of you, actually. Yeah, yeah, we, I, no, I think we could, I think we could, your friends and could attack that. I think there might be some local things that are interesting on a national scale that might be important to cover. That haven't been covered. Yeah, or even just like writing about New Orleans, you know what I mean? Like, you can write about your local community as well as like these bigger issues. Well, when Michel Andrew declares his presidential candidacy, we'll definitely yeah, have we'll to write definitely tackle that one. <laughs> Alright, cool. Yeah, thank you so yeah, much. We really appreciate being here. So yeah. Sure.